Okay, first, firstly, comrades, I'd like to thank Solidarity for inviting me to uh, to speak and uh, and to bring greetings from the Socialist Workers Party from the SWP here in the uh, in the UK. Um, and I want to wish all of you uh, um, the best for Keep Left 2021, um, meeting as we do in such challenging times. And so tonight I'm going to talk about uh, one of the key debates that comes up within the environmental movement. Um, it's a debate that you will undoubtedly encounter if you're doing a street stall, if you're doing a meeting or someone, someone inevitably will come up to you and say that the real problem is, is that there's too many people, that the world is overpopulated. And um, I'm going to be tackling that question and taking it on and arguing that it has deep roots and that those roots are often very reactionary roots. Um, but I'm also going to be arguing that in challenging uh, this incorrect argument, uh, we can find new ways of understanding the environmental crises that we're facing. And because the world has been focused on COVID-19, it's possible to forget that we're in the midst of uh, a global environmental disaster. And I think it's very important to point out that the these two disasters, these two crises, the crisis of coronavirus and the crisis of climate change and the other environmental uh, disasters that we face are not separate. Um, the coronavirus that has devastated communities and countries and populations around the world that has killed almost three million people has arisen out of the way that capitalism is constantly driving production into the frontiers of nature. Um, industrial agriculture, mass production, all done in the interests of uh, accumulating maximum profits. Um, and that is making it more likely that diseases like coronaviruses can make the leap from uh, wild animal populations into domestic animals and then into human populations, as we almost certainly saw with COVID-19. And actually very similar processes are driving the environmental crisis, um, uh, uh, leading to climate change, to the biodiversity extinction crisis, and uh, and so on. And um, so the two processes are very, very, uh, very similar. And I think we have to bear that in mind when we're discussing the uh, um, uh, the uh, the question of overpopulation, because understanding that there's these complex dynamics in society and our relationship with the environment is very, very important to unpicking what the real driver of environmental destruction uh, is. So let's start uh, with one of the men mentioned in the in the title that the comrade and the chairperson has has said, uh, Malthus, Thomas Robert Malthus. Um, Malthus was a minor clergyman in England in the late 18th century. Uh, and he had one big idea, and he put it in a book uh, which was first published in 1793 called An Essay on the Principle of Population. Uh, it was an essay, it's actually uh, quite a substantial book, and he held on to this through his life. It, it, it sort of uh, determined his career, if you like. Um, it, there were six editions of the book, all of them subtly different from the preceding ones, but they all had uh, a key central argument, and that argument put at its most simple, was that, their, uh, that humans would inevitably, um, uh, their population of humans would inevitably outstrip available resources, and in particular food. Um, and his argument was that humans would always end up being in a situation where there were not enough 
to feed people, to clothe people, to house people. Uh, he, he came up with a, uh, a semi, a pseudo-scientific uh, explanation for this. He said that uh, uh, um, it was partly to do with human nature, uh, uh, but actually there was no scientific basis to it. And many of his critics, right from the first time he published, uh, attacked the fact that, uh, that Malthus had no scientific back, backing, if you like, to his principal, his principal arguments. Um, so Malthus was arguing that human populations will always outstrip uh, resource uh, available resources and that people would inevitably be hungry. Um, but there's another factor to his book, which is almost always overlooked today. Um, and that's that Malthus was writing uh, in his position as a lowly clergyman at that time, uh, a defense of the capitalist system. Uh, in fact, he was particularly writing uh, an argument, a polemic, if you like, against the ideas of the French Revolution that had happened a few years previously. Um, and if you do pick up uh, a copy of Malthus's work, running through it is an argument against the idea that humans uh, could live in a society of freedom, of equality, a classless society, a society where everyone uh, could um, uh, enjoy uh, uh, the available resources, that there'd be no hungry people, there'd be no poor people, there'd be no unemployed people, and, uh, and so on. And Malthus is very, very clear in his, uh, in his essay that he's attacking uh, uh, those who say that capitalism is wrong. And his justification for that is that there's no point trying to build a society of equality and fraternity and liberty because actually people were basically greedy, the poor and uneducated in particular would have too many children, and at some point they'd run out of food and that would lead to uh, all sorts of social problems, hunger, poverty and unemployment and, uh, and so on. And Malthus's arguments became incredibly influential. Uh, uh, Charles Darwin and, uh, and Alfred Wallace, the two sort of twin uh, scientists who came up with the, uh, uh, the ideas of evolution, both were influenced by Malthus's book in different ways. Mal Wallace was a, an explicit radical and a socialist, and he took the ideas slightly different to how Darwin did. But nonetheless, these ideas were very, very influential uh, in society. And in fact, uh, uh, Frederick Engels, in the condition of the English working class, points out that the ideas, Malthus's arguments, have become the pet theory of the bourgeoisie, the, the pet justification for capitalism, the most available, most useful ideology to justify the class society, the inequality, the poverty uh, that existed uh, uh, around. And so whenever we look at people, what we call neo-Malthusians today, who argue about overpopulation, we must always remember that their arguments they're using have at their basis, uh, not just a discussion about human nature, uh, and, uh, and human biology, but actually also one that's deeply reactionary and counter-revolutionary, counter uh, if, uh, if you like. It's also worth remembering that Malthus had a very, very low opinion of, of, of people, uh, in particular the poor. Um, uh, and many people who use Malthus today actually neglect to tell us some of the things he said. So, for instance, in the first edition of his book, Malthus says this about illegitimate children. They should on no account whatever to be allowed to have any claim to parish allowance. The infant is, comparatively speaking, of no value to societies, as others will immediately supply its place. Now, the problem for those that came after Malthus, and there have been many scientists in the intervening centuries and many uh, uh, non-scientists and ideologists and, uh, and so on who've used Malthus, the problem is, is that his predictions have not come true. 
And there's complex reasons for this. Um, in the 20th century, for instance, we saw the Green Revolution that was able to, to feed many millions more people than Malthus ever, 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 ever predicted. Uh, Malthus didn't believe that the world population would be anywhere near what it is, uh, is today before it descended into uh, chaos and, uh, and hunger and so on. Um, but even those who've come many uh, years later in the 20th century, in the post-Second World War era, who've drawn on Malthus's central premise, have actually been proved wrong in their, uh, in their predictions. Um, two uh, uh, probably most important uh, figures in this regard um, uh, were William Vogt, uh, who wrote in the 40s uh, around, this, around this issue, and, uh, and Paul Ehrlich, who published a book in 1971, uh, what I have here, the, the Population Bomb, a book that was tremendously influential for the uh, early environmental movement, but also for uh, 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 the UN and, uh, and organisations like that, trying to think about how the world was, was organised. Both of those uh, writers and thinkers were convinced that the world would run out of food and other resources and uh, lead to uncontrollable environmental destruction unless population growth was limited, uh, stopped and, uh, and, uh, and reversed. But also both of those writers carried on with Malthus's reactionary arguments. Uh, uh, William Vogt, for instance, wrote a book called Communism at the Door, which was a, a sort of uh, a polemic about the fear of communism in America, undermining American values. Um, and Paul Ehrlich's book, uh, it, uh, which is, is actually quite a shocking read, I think, to the modern reader, um, is full of the fear of the masses, of fear of revolution, the fear of uprisings and, uh, and so on. He start, At the very start, Paul Ehrlich writes in 1971, in the US, we hear constantly of the headaches caused by growing population, not just pollution of the environment, but overcrowded highways, burgeoning slums, deteriorating school systems and rising crime rates. And so... Uh, uh, Ehrlich, like Malthus before him, very much arguing that population growth is very closely linked to lack of resources, but also to lack of uh, uh, jobs, employment, and thence to more crime, more riots, and, uh, and, uh, and so on. The other thing that we have to remember, and I think this is very crucial for socialists, is that uh, these arguments may be used sometimes by progressives, and I'll, I'll mention a couple in a moment, but when they uh, are used in more general, they often open the door to quite reactionary ideas. Paul Ehrlich's book uh, infamously starts with a description of, uh, which I won't read, it's actually quite shocking, of his experience of traveling through De Delhi, where he, he records the sort of how terrified he is of the sort of mass of, of, uh, of, of people in, uh, in, that, in, in, in India. Uh, he writes, it's the first time uh, uh, that I felt overpopulation. Now it's interesting that he chose Delhi. You can draw his own your own conclusions as to uh, as 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 to why. Um, but it's interesting that when people overpopulation theorists illustrate these uh, these these ideas, they very often use images of uh, the global south, of black or Asian Asian people. They don't illustrate them with a, a photograph of the uh, the middle class masses going to the Glastonbury Music Festival in Britain or. or to use an Australian example, the, uh, the white people on Bondi Beach. It's very usually illustrated with people in, uh, in the global south, in the Indian subcontinent and, uh, and, uh, and so on. And so even when progressives, David Attenborough, for instance, uh, uh, certainly not on the right, uh, uh, says that all our, environmental all our environmental problems would be easier to solve with fewer people, even when they use it, the problem is they open the door to reactionary, indeed racist uh, uh, arguments. Um, nonetheless, 
we have to be aware that there, for many people, is a common sense idea that simply more people means more resource use, you know, more cars, more pollution, more flights, more uh, 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 need for hospitals and schools and, uh, and so on. So it is entirely possible that uh, people who have got otherwise very left-wing or radical ideas will come to uh, uh, draw conclusions that there are too many people uh, 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 for no general uh, reactionary reason. But as I say, these ideas, once they become mainstream, can sometimes open up to very reactionary ideas. And certainly in the, the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, there were a whole number of countries, China and India in particular, that imposed very draconian uh, policies upon their population because they wanted to reduce the amount of children that families were having. Now, early predicted that uh, by the 1980s, most of the world would be starving. They emphasised the word most. Um, now, it's true that by the 1980s, there were many, many droughts. Uh, uh, 31 countries suffered droughts in the 1980s in sub-Saharan Africa, but only five of them suffered famine because the problem wasn't overpopulation or food shortages. The problem was the fact that those countries were unable to afford to buy foods. And one of the two distinctive images of the Ethiopian famine that I remember from the 1980s was starving children, but also food mountains in the European Union, because Ethiopia and the people who lived there were unable to afford to buy the food on the, uh, on the, on the free market. And indeed, in direct contradiction to Malthus, to Ehrlich and to other commentators, the, despite the fact that the world population is continuing to, to grow, the number of hungry people in the world is continuing to drop. Uh, uh, it's still uh, uh, appalling that 800, it's a condemnation of capitalism, if you like, that 850 million people in the world today are hungry. But that's actually a decrease on previous years, despite the fact that the world's population is growing. So actually, there's something wrong with the basic argument that Malthus and others have, have put that simply growth in population leads to the lack of resources or environmental, environmental destruction. And that's because actually population and demographics is much, much more complex than Malthus suggests. And in fact, the person in the street who comes up and says there's too many people are guilty of actually not really understanding what population growth is happening. In fact, population growth for the world is, uh, is about to level off and plateau and probably decrease as we reach the end of this, uh, of this century. There was a steep, sharp increase in population at the, uh, uh, the 18th and then the 19th century, which uh, uh, peaked and started to drop off after 1971 uh, in terms of population, uh, the rates of population change. And that's leading to a, a plateau of, uh, of population. And in fact, in many countries uh, in the European uh, Union, where I am, but particularly developed countries, population growth has levelled off already and is beginning to uh, show signs of dropping, uh, uh, dropping off. And most population growth in the world, before the world enters a sort of decline in population, is going to happen in uh, very specific parts of the world, uh, sub-Saharan Africa and the Indian subcontinent. Now, those are interesting parts of the, of, of the world from an environmental problem. Uh, point of view, because they're the parts of the world where uh, that have least contributed to the environmental disaster and particularly to, to climate change. Now, if you take uh, Australia's per capita emissions or the United States or, or, or Europe's, they're 10 or 15 times higher than countries like Angola or Niger, which have the highest rates of population increase. And so an extra 10,000 people in a country like Niger or Chad or Sudan will have almost no impact upon the, uh, the environmental destruction that that country is, uh, is, uh, is making. And so really, there's a much, much more complex dynamic taking place here. And um, in addition, 
there, even in developed countries, I, I hear here in campaigning in Britain that people will say to me, oh, there's too many people in the world. Yet Britain's population, like that of Italy or, or Germany, is going to set to decline quite drastically. And already countries like Italy and, uh, and Germany are heavily reliant on immigrant populations to, uh, uh, to keep population levels up and to, uh, to look and support uh, uh, an, aging, an aging population. So the other fascinating thing, though, about population, and again, it's counterintuitive and it goes against the common sense argument, is that uh, 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 the number of children that women are having around the world is decreasing in every part of the, uh, of, of the globe, even in sub-Saharan uh, Africa. And that's because the number of children that women have is based on a whole number of complex factors, but most um, commonly on the uh, economic strength of women who live in countries that are, have got better education, better healthcare and so on, uh, better pay, better pension prospects, they tend to have less numbers of children. So as the world becomes more affluent in general, people are tending to have less uh, less children. And this is happening around the world and is why the uh, num total number of population is beginning to plateau off and will decrease in the, uh, in the, uh, in the future. And so... Having sort of taken and dismissed the, the, this myth, the idea that population is growing out of control, I, I want to move on to, a, uh, to the second half of the argument, which is that around the environment. Um, uh, Malthus didn't write about the environment, uh, though he was particularly concerned about food and, uh, and jobs and, uh, and so on. Uh, but most of the commentators who've come since have. I mentioned uh, Paul Ehrlich in particular. And if you read his book, uh, it's one of the earliest books to actually mention climate change and emissions uh, leading uh, of, of fossil fuels, which he attributes to the growth of population. And the example he uses at the heart of his book is a major environmental crisis that was taking place in the United States at the time, which was smog uh, re related to the exhaust fumes from, from traffic. He, and he talks about Los Angeles, a city that was expanding massively in the 1960s. And he says, look, as this city has expanded, as more people have lived in Los Angeles, there's more smog because Ehrlich argues more people means more cars, means more pollution. Except if you unpick what happens in Los Angeles uh, in the 1960s, in fact, in the post-Second World War period, it's much, much more complex. What actually happens is that, firstly, the city had been supported by a public transport uh, infrastructure based on electric trams, and that was dismantled in favour of more profitable buses by the bus companies. Secondly, the city did expand uh, because the suburbs were built, and they weren't fed, uh, designed to be fed by public transport, but by freeways and cars. And the size of the city growing meant that people entering the workforce, and women in particular, uh, would have to, uh, to purchase more, more cars. So there's a much, much more complex relationship between um, uh, the pollution levels in a country like a city like Los Angeles and, uh, and population levels. It's not simply a one-to-one -one, uh, uh, growth. Also, it's, uh, it's an obvious point that Paul Early completely forgot, which is that children don't buy cars. Uh, 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 adults do. And so there isn't a, an immediate direct relationship between the number of children and, and pollution. And that's also true today. We have to be very careful of figures that use per capita uh, information to, uh, 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 to to measure environmental destruction. In, in the world, the 
50% uh, of uh, uh, emissions from airlines come from 1% of users because actually it's the lifestyles of the rich that are driving uh, polluting flights and, uh, and, uh, and so on. It's not the majority of us. And even though governments and sometimes environmentalists like to point the finger, the problem is you having your flight, your holiday, your trip abroad or, or, or whatever. Actually, the problem is very rarely the person who flies once a year or twice uh, 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 once every couple of years. It's more likely the rich person who is flying multiple times over and over and over again. And so um, uh, what I'm trying to argue, I suppose, is that the individualistic approach to environmental destruction is uh, a misdirection. It's to miss the real drivers of environmental destruction, which is the capitalist system itself. Now, Paul Ehrlich, Malthus and all those other commentators, what they tend to do is they start from the individual, how that individual consumes, eats, uh, travels and, uh, and, uh, and so on. But actually, that's the incorrect way of understanding how environmental destruction uh, takes place. What we have to look at is actually the way production is organised in society in a rational, unsustainable, uh, environmentally destructive way under, under capitalism. Because under capitalism, production is organised in the interest of maximising profits, and that means destroying the natural world uh, 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 in the interests of uh, making more uh, making more money. Um, and the poorest people in the world, the, the mass of the population uh, in the globe, is least uh, a, a part and involved in that, uh, in that, in that, in that process. Um, and the organisation of capitalism, because it's driven by competition, by uh, blocks of capital competing against each other, governments and firms, sorry, companies and firms and multinationals and so on, it means that production is organised in an utterly irrational uh, rational way. So there's no way for the capitalists to manage their environmental impact in a more sustainable uh, more way. Thank you, Chair. Um, and so blaming the individuals for pollution or blaming the individuals for uh, not having enough food is to approach the question from the uh, from the wrong way and to let the real criminals off the uh, off the uh, off the hook. Um, and so, what happens, I think, with the neo-Malthusians today, those who stand in the legacy of Malthus and and, and people like Paul Ehrlich, who are still writing and, uh, and and producing articles and books today, is that uh, they end up blaming the mass of the population for a problem that they haven't created and aren't uh, aren't responsible for, and it's a distraction from the real problem in, in society. It's a similar process to what Malthus did when he tried to blame ordinary people for their lack of access to jobs or lack of access to food or for their own, own poverty. And this is why, from Malthus's day onwards, the left have criticised and attacked these arguments. Uh, Malthus, in his time, was heavily under uh, critiqued by those who were of a more radical uh, bent. Marx and Engels were perhaps his most trenchant and uh, clear critics, Marx in particular, or Engel, both of them absolutely despised uh, uh, Malthus's ideas. Um, uh, Marx wrote that uh, 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 Malthus's idea were reliable on the working working population. In fact, Marx actually calls him a baboon in the uh, Grind Grindrisse. Um, uh, but Marx actually had a much deeper analysis that's much closer, if you like, to the one I've tried to outline today. Because what Marx and Engels said is it's not possible to create a general law of population for humans like you would do for plants or for animals. Actually, what you had to do is to analyse population in the context of the society they live in. So Marx writes this, 
overpopulation is a historically determined relation, in no way determined by abstract numbers or by the absolute limit of the productivity of the necessities of life, but by the limits positive rather by specific conditions of production. How small do the numbers which meant overpopulation for the Athenians appear to us today? And Marx was absolutely right. Um, so he, previous historical societies lived in completely different ways, but overpopulation for them would have been nothing compared to the vast number of people on the planet today. And, and when we look at capitalism and contrast it with a socialist way of organising society, we have to understand that people are in poverty or people are hungry today, not because there isn't food or there isn't need for them to do jobs or there isn't actually money and wealth around. They're in poverty because it's not in the interest of the system to, uh, to allow them to work, uh, to feed them or to house them or give them health care. And that's a dark condemnation of society, of, of capitalism. But it also enables us to say something different very concretely, which is actually we can have an alternative way of organising society and organising production, one that is not environmentally destructive because it's not based on an irrational drive to compete, but is based on the rational use of natural resources of human labour and the rational distribution of them. And that's a society that wouldn't waste resources on war, on advertising, on uh, uh, all, all those sort of things. But it's also one that would say, what is the impact of the things we're doing? How can we make it better? Better. How can we transport and live and organise our lives in a in a way that just doesn't destroy the environment, but also enables people to have uh, uh, to live in the midst of uh, of, uh, of plenty? And those who argue and use Malthus, they end up diverting us away from that struggle because they end up saying that the problem is individuals. And Marx was right. The, uh, the Malthusian, as it was in the 18th century, and it is in the 21st, is a liable on the poor because it blames them for their predicament. It blames them for their poverty, when the reality is the capitalist system which we need to scrap and get rid of uh, and build a new socialist society. Yeah.